Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William, and this week my co-host is Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Hello, William. Samantha's on an episode a few weeks ago, and she will be on several more episodes coming up. So be sure to go back and listen to her episode to get to know her. This week, we have a special guest, Liz Bailey. Hi, Liz. Hello. Liz is a survivor and an advocate and a host of a podcast herself, The Pretty Truth. And we are going to talk about her journey to becoming an advocate and what that was like. So before we start, just a trigger warning, we will be talking about potentially her experience as a survivor and what other experiences survivors have and how programs might intersect with that. So if at any point you feel like you need to take a break from the episode, please step away and take care of yourself and you can join us back whenever you're ready. Liz, so happy to have you here. Thank you for Um, having me. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Okay. So I'm a speech therapist by trade. I went to undergrad and graduate school for speech pathology, and I work in the pediatric home health as my job that pays my bills. I have three kids. I always say two that came out of my body and one that is my stepson. So I have a 10-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a four-year-old. And so just by working and writing and launching my own advocacy stuff and, and I'm really learning that whole new space and being a mom and still going through a divorce. I'm really busy, but I'm super happy to be here and talk about this because it feels really, really important. And we're super glad that you're here. Every episode we do a quick icebreaker, a little fun question to try to help get to know our guests. And because we're talking about journeys, your journey specifically from survivor to advocate, We kind of, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but we kind of wanted to talk about field trips. We were thinking about when we were young and we would take field trips and how cool that journey was and to be out of your normal setting. And so my question to you is, is there a favorite field trip that you took when you were growing up? I love this question because I was actually just within the last few days thinking about a field trip I took. And it was so special because my dad, who has passed, was on that trip. And it was really special for him to leave work and take a day to do this. So I'm from Austin, born and raised. Apparently I'm a unicorn. But when I was little, we took a trip to Brenham where the Bluebell factory is. And we got to tour that. And I just remember that my dad got to try mint chocolate chip is his favorite. And I just remember him getting that there and us having that together. And it was such a special moment. And also my son's favorite flavor is mint chocolate chip. So that's very cute. But yeah, it was a long field trip because that's pretty far out of town. And it's just a really special memory of mine. That's awesome. I think that it's always interesting when parents come on field trips. Like some kids like are very much about it. And other kids are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be embarrassed the entire time. Samantha, do you have a favorite field trip? That is like the sweetest story. That makes my heart so happy to hear. (laughs) And I did have a field trip where my parents came, but I was stressed, like loved having them there. But the field trip itself was just very stressful. It's like a long trip and it was hot. So it's not my favorite, but I did love that they were there. My favorite field trip. I'm from South Texas. And so we always hit like the very obvious coastal field trips. And one of my favorite was going to the aquarium. And we got to spend the day looking at all the fish. And my favorite part is where you can like touch the fish. (laughs) Like they have stingrays and 
little baby sharks that you can touch or pet. I don't know the right words for fish apparently, but that was probably one of the most fun field trips I've had. I love that. I'm forever going to be thinking about, am I petting this weird wet animal or am I just touching it? And what's its experience? Does it feel pet? or Literally. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize until this exact moment that I don't have a frame of reference for how to refer to (laughs) touching a fish. But yeah. What about you, William? That's incredible. I also think that my favorite field trip involved an aquarium. So I grew up in Middle Tennessee and we one time took a field trip to Chattanooga, which is like an hour and a half from where I lived. And that's where the Tennessee Aquarium is. And it was just a really, I think it was, I don't know if it was the first time that I was there, but it was just a really good trip. I weirdly, like, again, I was in elementary school, but we had a few collectible shot glasses in our home. And so that's what I got as a souvenir from the gift shop. But my teacher had to buy it for me because they wouldn't sell it to me because I was, they were like, this child is buying a shot glass. And so my teacher had to buy it for me. But now as an adult, I have started to collect shot glasses. I think I've shared that on the podcast before. And that's probably the first one, like the oldest one in the collection that I have. So that's so cool. And shout out to that teacher for being like, yeah, I'll buy this for you. <laughs> that sounds great. I love that story. I love that. I also, my dad also collected shot glasses from all the places we went. So it was really fun. Like I knew that I was like, wherever I go, even if it's at the airport of the place I'm at, I got to get a shot glass. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so crazy. I haven't met many people that collect shot glasses. So that's incredible. Uh, All the serendipitousness is happening. I think that the three of us need to go pet a fish together. I guess that would make my inner child so happy. (laughs) I'd be like, all about that. (laughs) Anyway, Liz, moving on from the fish (laughs) and whether you pet or touch them. I am so excited to have this conversation with you today and I'm glad that you are taking time to talk with us. And as William said earlier, we're going to be talking a little bit about your journey from survivor to advocate and how you came into your own in that role. And so I was listening to one of the episodes on your podcast, The Pretty Truth, and I think it was one of the most recent or one of the more recent episodes. And the conversation that y'all were having was about learning to trust yourself again after being in an abusive relationship and leaving an abusive relationship. And so I kind of wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about what that process was like for you of learning to trust yourself again and how you built on that and built it up to where you're now in this advocacy space. Yeah. I love framing it as a journey because going from survivor to advocate is its own journey. Within that journey is this whole self-trust thing and it's ongoing. It doesn't feel like there's an end point that I'll be getting to because it's all such a new space that's ever evolving and I'm learning so much as I go. So, I mean, I can kind of start with what happened to land me in survivor land. I will say that I didn't know I was in an abusive relationship for a really long time, even though there were very obvious things, including physical violence. It still didn't really dawn on me that that's what was happening. And I think it's because it was not all the time, but I didn't realize that the verbal and manipulative stuff also played into it. So I didn't really know what was happening. And then by the time I did, 
then it was like, oh my God, I have to like change things. Like I can't do this, but I was so scared, especially when somebody threatens to take the financial rug out from under you, knowing that that's your weak point. And one thing I'm learning as I talk to other people who are going through this is that people who are abusive find your weaknesses and exploit them. (laughs) They will make you feel good. And then they will make that a weapon. So just, and it's really, really insidious and it's really hard. It can be very hard to detect. And so once I finally took the hard and scary steps to leave and make big changes, I just had these moments where I was like, well, backtrack. I started Years ago, I was like, I'm going to write a book. I've always been a writer. I want to write, but I was, the idea of writing a book was seemed so far off. And then I started writing something and then that got shelved. And then I started looking into freelance writing. And then once I left, I was like, this is the book. This is what it is. Cause what I ended up doing was I documented in my notes app, in my phone, my entire relationship. And it was just in an effort to journal out what I was feeling. Cause it was so scary and hard and confusing, And so after I was starting, I went back and I was reading through them. I was like, wow, I have like a whole story here and it's really raw. And it's really interesting to go back and read those real time recordings, if you will. And so I was like, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to tell people I'm not writing a book about him. I'm writing a book about me because I got here and didn't even know that I was in this victim slash survivor space, but I don't want to be a, I'm not a victim, but I'm also, I don't really identify with survivor because I think that can be a part of an identity, but I don't want that to be all of who I am because I feel very whole. And that's just a part of my story. You know what I mean? I think that attaching to one sort of identity trait or one part of your experience is a slippery slope. So a lot of what I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying to really learn about so much about domestic violence so that it's well-rounded. My advocacy is well-rounded. Yeah. And I think that that is incredible and takes a lot of initiative and strength on your part to want to kind of dig deeper into this movement. I know that there are some survivors who absolutely don't, like they, they want the distance from from this movement. And so... And I think that that what you were saying about not only or solely identifying as a survivor is important because, I mean, we're talking about specific journeys in this podcast, but like life is a journey, right? Like, and so being able to say that, like, that's not the entire defining aspect of who I am or even what happened to me or what I am doing, and that it's just one part of the whole, but that you are a complete person with other aspects and so I'd say that even just hearing that little bit of what you were sharing, there was the fact that like you didn't know what was going on at first. And I imagine that played into not trusting yourself a little bit. But then also you had some instincts to be taking notes and like journaling to keep track of some of those things. And so like I'm imagining that some of that contributed to the relearning to trust yourself. Absolutely. It's really interesting because we have our instincts and they are, it is in us biologically, primitively. It knows before our intellect knows, you know, when you get that gut feeling, it's like, that's actually really important. And I had plenty of those, but it was so easily overridden by childhood trauma or childhood wounds, or you know what, it'll be okay. I negotiated with myself all the time. I had an instinct that I just kind of, 
all the red flags I kind of filed away for another day. And as you can imagine, they all show up. But yeah, in the journey of being in the relationship, there was so much, not only trust lost with him, but with myself. Like now I am in this, first of all, I am like single, like truly single for like the first time ever. And it feels amazing because I am leaning into who I am. I am, you know, some people are like, are you dating yourself? I'm like, I really am. Like I, I listen to when I want to say yes to somebody and when I want to say no, I'm taking care of myself and I'm doing what feels right. And I'm cultivating the relationships around me that bring me up and just spreading that. So it's a really new space, but in that it's like, am I making the right choices? Because if you look back in my history, I made some pretty poor choices on paper. You know what I mean? If you wanted to take all the context out of it. And so now as I think about possibly dating in the future and what does a relationship look like and who am I trusting as I move into the advocacy space, it's like, it all starts with that self-trust so that I can more easily trust other people. But I don't even know how to answer the original question, which is how do you relearn that? I think it's just trial and error and a good sense of being able to I quote my best friend, Jess here, get quiet, quiet inside and listen. Because again, that instinct that's happening inside is it's really loud (laughs) when we want to listen to it, but it also can be very easily, you know, filed away. Yeah. I love that. I think that that listening to yourself part can be really hard, even without additional trauma or like you were talking about childhood wounds, like even just on a good day, (laughs) it can be a really hard thing to do and feel like grounded in yourself and feel grounded in your experiences so that you're making like true choices, right? Like your truest, most authentic decisions. And I love that you we're talking about how you're dating yourself, <laughs> but yeah, just like really leaning into that time and that space of just honoring your own choices and your own decisions. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah. It's a very interesting space for sure, but it's also really great. And it's really, it's what I'm looking for. It feels really solid. Like I'm building something solid from the inside out instead of looking for validation outside for in, which is what we're groomed to do. I mean, I had great parents and they were also conditioned by their parents and so on and so on. And so it's like, in a way, I'm just, I'm trying to be different in the way I respond and react and that kind of stuff and teach my kids those skills as well, because maybe they won't have to do so much unlearning of that old programming of just be quiet or just take what, just, you have a nice life. What are you complaining about? Or you're not in a war zone. Why are you complaining? So I ended up doing, and I know a lot of people do this, a lot of that comparing of my trauma and your trauma. One of the things I found myself doing was comparing my experiences to everybody, not only other victims and survivors of domestic violence, but just women and people and found myself saying things like, what are you complaining about? You've got a nice life. It's nice enough. And I would do a lot of self-negotiation, which made it really easy to not trust myself. So I had to really get in check the fact that it's not a competition and that comparing trauma and experiences and in that way isn't actually helpful to anybody. I think that's such a great point. And I think it can go back really to what you were talking about earlier, where your story, that part, like that chapter where you were in an abusive relationship and that trauma, that's part of who you are. That's not 
your whole identity. You're a whole person. And every experience that you have different from other people and unique to yourself, that's valuable. And you bring that valuable experience and knowledge to the advocacy space. And so it wouldn't do any good if everybody had the same exact experience or their same exact trauma, right? Because we need that diversity and experience. I mean, you bring being a mom, you bring being a person who believes in the woo-woo that you talk about in your podcast, right? And like sort of witchy things. And so you bring lots of different perspectives and that's all valuable to the advocacy space. Yeah. I like the way you put that. I feel like that makes a lot of sense because in my ongoing research, if you will, one of the things I've read a lot and make sure to include in my writing is that domestic violence is indiscriminate. Anybody can experience it. And so I think bringing the different voices does help inform policy and advocacy and therapy. So like for me, I am educated and I'm white and I'm Jewish and I'm a mom and I also like yoga. And when we think about domestic violence, I think that people are still thinking about tropes like backhanding somebody in a trailer park and not to say that doesn't happen, but it happens to lots of people and people are getting, I think that the stories from all walks of life, they need to be told. Yeah. I kind of lost my train of thought there. No. Yeah. I think that that is a great point. And I think that that is important for organizations working in advocacy spaces. Often we have homogenous staff that all look the same at our organizations. It is sometimes very difficult for survivors to get jobs at organizations because the organization is, sometimes the organization being a little paternalistic and saying like, I don't know if you're ready, right? Like I, as the organization, am determining you as this person who is applying for a job or a volunteer position are not ready to work with other survivors because you're not healed from your own trauma, right? And that's a decision that the organization is making. Granted, I think that that's an important decision for that individual to explore for themselves. Are they ready to jump into an advocacy space or which, you know, there's like a shallow end of the pool and a deep end of the pool to advocacy. So like being able to determine where you're ready to be or if you need to navigate deep to shallow and back again, because again, it's a journey and you can go have bad days and good days. And, and so being able to determine that for yourself is important. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I like the shallow and deep because I'm not really sure where I'm at right now. I don't feel like I'm treading water. I feel like I'm kind of taking baby steps, but really because I literally Googling things and making phone calls to people I don't know, like I'm networking in a space that I've never had to network before because in my career, everyone needs, you know, speech therapists always have a job. So you go, you interview-ish and then you get a job and then you take some CEUs and it's just kind of easy and boxed in. This is like, all new. And there's so much of my own personal trauma that's informing it, but also knowing other people's. And so what I found is that what's interesting to me is not what I was expecting to be interesting to me. I thought I wanted to definitely dive into victim survivor advocacy, almost like a therapist, even thinking about going down a schooling road. And as much as I still want to be a safe space for listening, I'm finding that I'm really, really interested in policy because 
And if I could use my F word one time, fuck the patriarchy, because the systems in place to protect us are not protecting us because they're not working. (laughs) Just to put it in the simplest terms, they're outdated, they're run by men. And I'm still in the middle of a divorce. And it's gone from the abuse that from when we lived together to post-separation abuse that I didn't even know was a thing. And now I'm experiencing, and I'm like, oh my God, like it's a whole journey from beginning of relationship, love bombing, all that stuff you hear about all the way to reclaiming your power, but that the controlling partner is really, really trying to not let that happen. And so I think being aware for ourselves and also talking to other people on the journey, telling them that you're always like, not always you're on a long journey. And I think maybe even surrendering to the fact that there's might always feel like a long way to go, but there are milestones in your own healing and taking back your power that can feel good and make it worth going further, even though it's hard and scary. I think that demonstrates like all the hard work that you're having to do all the time, right? So like there's there's the work that happens when you're in the relationship. There's the work that happens post-relationship with courts or custody or whatever that process looks like for each individual person. And then as you're trying to enter the advocacy space, there's all the work that you're doing there to sort of like break through and say like, hey, I'm here. Like, I want to do this. I want to be a part of this. So I think that to me feels like a call to action for organizations, honestly, because it's how can we from more of a baseline include survivor voices more regularly and not only have that be like an exception, that should be like a standard and have it be an expectation so that we're informed in the work that we're doing. And like William said earlier, it doesn't have to be like an advocacy position necessarily within the organization. There are different ways that we can do that. So does that mean like having a survivor board for certain projects or does it mean, yeah, having a a full-time paid position. It feels like there are lots of different ways that can be incorporated so that it bridges that gap a lot better for survivors who are looking to get into that space. Yeah. I never really recognized how important it is to have the person who's experiencing the thing be amongst those making the rules. I think as a white person, I never had to think about that in a race way. But of course, with the way things are right now, I think that that conversation is really important. And so I'm thinking about conversations I'm having with other people and webinars that I'm attending and classes, all of that. And it's like, yes, you need, like you said, homogenous, like we need people, we need a diversity on boards and in organizations to be making choices with the perspective of somebody who's lived it with their lived experience. And so, and I, why would I have ever thought about this before? I hadn't. And so it's like mind blowing because I find my, because it's, it's so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than my situation, than domestic violence, than Austin. Like it's so much bigger and so much more systemic. And what I think about a lot is I have a son and a daughter and I have these beautiful opportunities to help shape them to be people who 
understand the system from a different place, that it doesn't have to be my way or the highway because I'm a guy and it doesn't have to be, I'm going to sit and look pretty and use sex as currency for my daughter, you know? And so I find myself thinking about really big existential things from kind of the micro, my life to the macro, and it can be really exciting, but also really overwhelming. Yeah. And I think it's also one of those things where when we do prevention work to try to do some of that education and that social change, often as a movement and other movements as well, not just the domestic violence movement, focus on teaching children, which is important. And kind of like you had said earlier, it's also about how we are learning from our parents, what generational messages are coming down. So we also, along with educating young people, have to put effort into doing prevention work with adults. We have to be educating families so that like, if you're in a school setting or an after-school setting with a young person, then they go home and they're receiving contradictory messaging from their parents. We have to be educating communities as a whole, not just young people. Young people definitely need that education, but we also have to be working to empower parents with the knowledge and skills to maintain those type of positive, inclusive, prevention-based messages. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because that parallels very much with being a speech therapist. Like in all of my plans of care for my patients, there's always a home education goal because we know that progress can be made with two sessions a week for 30 minutes or however it is, but really you spend the most time at school and with your family. And so the people that you are with the most need to know how to carry over these skills. And so, yeah, I just, I think that that can be applied to everything. And I think that's a really good point. Thank you for making it. Yeah. And I think that it's also steering it back around to policy is that a lot of people just don't know one, how much policy, like legislative policy impacts our lived experience Two, um, how to get into that arena. It's so intimidating to try to approach, I mean, policy generally, but specifically legislative policy, because if you try to read a bill, it's like the way it's written is like just hard to follow. And you try to get access to a particular space and like, it's very much exclusive in a lot of ways. And then you look at representation or lack thereof in our political spaces and think about how many people have actually experienced, in our context, how many people have actually experienced violence in their relationships or in their homes, and how they are or are not bringing that to the floor of the legislature. So having people who have experienced or witnessed violence, first of all, run for office, right? And second of all, being able to testify in public hearings, being able to work with legislatures and their staffs is so important to bring that perspective and experience forward. I totally agree. And up until recently, like when Donald Trump was elected, my girlfriends and I were like, all right, we're writing letters. What are we doing? And it was the first time that I I, I voted, but it was like, I just kind of did my civil duty and took a picture with my I voted sticker and moved on with life. And I did a little bit of research, but mostly it was asking my friend who was more into like politics, like who should I vote for now? And then, you know, Trump and it's like, okay, maybe we got to make a difference. But again, it's such a daunting task because you look at rich white men with so much power. And how do you go up against that? I mean, it feels really hard. And I have told my, reminded myself 
the changes that I am working toward making are unlikely going to be seen in my lifetime, but we're leaving steps for those behind us. And so when I feel like, I don't know what I'm doing, who the hell, how do I write a Senator? What am I doing? I'm just going to quit. It's like, no, something that I'm doing is impacting someone somewhere somehow in this timeline of life. Right. And so going back to electing people. So this last primary that we had earlier this month, I did my homework. I looked into the judges that were on the up for election and some of them really ran on platforms for, for domestic abuse survivors. And I was like, those are the people that I want getting my case next month because I've thought about this a lot. My lawyer has said, and I've heard many lawyers say, a lot of it depends on the judge. And I'm like, that is so freaking scary. So what you're saying is I can have this experience, this trauma, do all this work, play by these rules, da da da, da and it'll come down to some potential dude who probably in his experience has maybe even been abusive or maybe saw his mother being abused and that was normalized. So my story might look like, what is this hysterical woman talking about? This is not that big of a deal. Slow your roll, go put a heating pad on your menses. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just saying it's scary because we do all this work to protect ourselves and protect others. And we're in a system that just may not give any shits. Yes, absolutely. And it's also... I mean, I feel like people are like, oh, life's not fair. But our legal system is supposed to be fair, right? And so the fact that, like, if you get one judge, you're going to get one outcome. You bring that exact same case before a different judge, and there's a different outcome because of the judge's experience or perspective or their misogyny or racism or anything else. Like, yeah, like, it's dumb. Like, it's... (laughs) It is dumb. (laughs) Like... And so being able to, again, that's another arena for advocacy, being able to train judges and to give them that perspective. The same thing with law enforcement, the same thing with anything that's in that criminal legal justice system route, because your experience with those individuals can really impact the outcome of your case or of your life in some cases, Yeah, I read The Body Keeps the Score. Have you guys read that book? After I was done reading and I said to myself and probably many others, this should be required reading for literally everyone, especially people in any kind of mental health space, but also teachers. I mean, I know that I think about what my patients are going through in a different way, just as a speech therapist. And I think about when cops show up at a scene and by the time maybe they've gotten there, the woman has had enough and has been in fight and fight or flight for so long that she looks crazy. And then you've got this manipulative abuser who's like, look at this crazy woman, feeds into the system. We see this time and again. But if we knew about what trauma does to the brain and how we neurologically and biologically react and act in these certain ways, then we could show up, the officers could show up to a scene like this and be just more informed, trauma informed. And so, yeah, there are so many systems that need overhauls and it feels really, it feels scary to be honest. And just leading back into the self-trust piece, when I start feeling like, what's the point of this? I'm just like, because I trust that I've made the choice. I trust that the choices I made before got me here. And there's a reason for it, whether it's some people don't like there. Everything happens for a reason. And I do not say that because I think that that is, uh, can be a very shitty thing to say to people. But I believe that 
I am helping people from my experience and that experience had to happen. And I just trust it. It just helps me trust myself more is really what I'm trying to say. I feel so inspired and I feel like super jazzed (laughs) and I am like, yes, and we're going to go do all the things. Right. And so if you, and maybe this is putting you on the spot, so sorry in advance, (laughs) but if you had to choose like your next big, like dream thing, like if you're picturing yourself, like end game, like this is what you feel fulfilled doing. You've, you've made your mark. Like, what do you think that would look like for you? I actually love this question and I've been thinking about it. I actually just had a conversation with somebody last week about kind of like scaling what you want to do. What's here, what's next, what's bigger. And I'm like, okay, I can, you know, I like flow charts. Let's talk about it in that way. I really love writing. I think I'm good at it. And I think that, and it is healing to me. And so the book that I want to write feels really important. And what I see that leading to is having enough I'm going to use the word power. I don't love it, but getting enough power socially from that book to make change. People who have power and money can make change. And if you can use that for good, good social change, then I want to do that. And if that comes from my creative efforts turning into political efforts, that's what I want. That's how I want what I'm doing right now to scale out and the legacy that I want to leave. Yeah. I think being able to have that influence would be like really... Incredible. If you had one piece of advice, maybe it's a piece of advice that somebody gave you. Maybe it's just something that you have for other people, for someone looking to figure out how to trust themselves or someone just on the journey out of an abusive relationship. What would that piece of advice be? I love that question. And because I knew the answer immediately, one of my best friends told me. And I said, I think it's time. It's time to go. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so scared for the fight that's going to come. Da, 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 da. She said simply, yeah, it's going to be hard. And it was so easy and simple and didn't, didn't flower it up. Like you're so strong. You can do it. And, and not that I know that she believes those things about me, but in that moment, she was like, it's going to be really hard. And I, when it's really hard, I remember that, that it's hard right now and that's okay. And that it's not always going to be this hard. But just surrendering to the fact that it's hard right now is okay, makes it to where I don't have to make it not okay all the time. That's so emotionally exhausting. So yeah, that's what I would say is if you're making those choices to save your life physically, emotionally, and that of your family and move through a relationship like that, it's going to be hard. And also it's going to be okay. Thank you. Liz, thanks so much for this conversation today. Obviously, like this topic of journeying and trusting yourself is so huge and we could talk for a long time. But I think that it has been so helpful to hear your perspective, to hear about your journey. And if people want to know more about your journey or about like just your perspective on things, where can they find you? I have a website called lizgbailey.com. On there are my blogs and my best friend Jess and I do a podcast called The Pretty Truth, and you can link to it there. And this is a baby project and it's growing. So, in time, I will have different offerings. One thing that I'm going to be doing soon is offering like a sharing circle, like a safe space. But I want my website to be a starting point. I've had a few people reach out on the contact me form and just tell me their story and just say thank you. And so that's what it's it's a, a safe landing space. So please feel free to visit lizgbailey.com and look around a little bit. 
Yeah, we'll be sure to put your website and your podcast in our episode description so people can go check it out. Again, thank you so much. We appreciate you. And we look forward to seeing you in advocacy spaces here in Texas. And for listeners, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.